Why don't we all pray while you're standing? Let's pray for the people in Ukraine. Father, in the name of Jesus, we call upon you. We ask you, Father, to protect and be with your people in the Ukraine as they endure the evil work of Satan. We thank you, Father, for protecting your children in supernatural and even miraculous ways. Father, we ask that you would confound the enemies of your people, that you would confuse them and confound them so that the devil's plans are thwarted. We thank you, Father, for doing great and wonderful things in the midst of your people. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. You may be seated. I want to continue the series we've been teaching for the last several weeks on healing belongs to us. And the text scriptures, main text scriptures that we're using for this is in Matthew chapter 8 and Isaiah chapter 53. Matthew 8, 16 when the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. And Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4 Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Now we've talked a little bit about this. And the words that are used here, the word griefs and sorrows are really mistranslated. This word grief, the, word, the Hebrew word that's translated griefs in verse 4 of Isaiah 53 is used 24 times in the Old Testament. Four times it's translated griefs. 20 times it's translated sickness. An example of that would be in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 61, every sickness and every disease not mentioned in this book will the Lord deliver you from. It's talking about being redeemed from the curse of the law. You know, there's... Um, I've taken a different attitude here recently concerning uh, the subject of sickness as taught us and revealed to us in the Bible and what I mean by that is it's always angered me and anger is really a, a too small a word but it's always made me angry that the translators would bail on one of the most important scriptures in the whole Bible everybody knows that Isaiah 53 is the messianic chapter. It's talking about what the Messiah would do for us. And then when we come to one of the greatest blessings enumerated in the scripture, which is healing for the physical body, the translators just absolutely bailed. The thing that changed in me is that I realized just recently that there are many obstacles that are identified in the Bible in the translation of the scripture that gives the person a choice of whether they're going to believe as the translators did which was strong enough for them to reject the most literal translation that was available to them or are they going to push back and push forward, push through the objections the roadblocks, the boundaries that are identified 
and caused by man, originated, of course, by the devil, influenced by the devil, but miss out on the blessings of God. We know of the roadblocks that are established, even in the translation of the Bible that we have and that we use. For example, Paul's thorn in the flesh, Paul writing to the church, to the Corinthian church, about the persecution and the work of the devil that, was, that came against him, but that he did not let it stop him. And here, where Paul is identifying the strength of God that overcomes the work of the devil that would not and could not stop him from fulfilling the plan of God in his life. And it's been twisted and turned in such a way that much of the church, maybe most of the church in this modern day, believes that Paul struggled with sickness and that God would not heal him. Well, folks, if God wouldn't heal Paul, why, could it, why would he heal you or me? And that's really the, the important things that we need to recognize that when man twists Bible doctrine, it always robs him of the very blessings and benefits that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. So the, really the question that should be asked and that we should face continuously is what will it take to persuade you? What will it take to persuade you that healing is God's will for everyone in the body of Christ? What will it take to make the difference for you and me, for all of us, whether or not we're going to receive and take hold of the blessing of healing for the physical body. This mistranslation with these words, griefs and sorrows, along with other mistranslations, for example, the Bible says in many places, King James says, in many places that the Lord will put upon you this disease or smite you with this disease or send this vexation against you. Well, here's another avenue that the devil uses to rob us of what belongs to us through the work, the finished work of Jesus. And of course, the explanation has to do with the language. Apparently in the Hebrew there is a, a permissive tense of verbs that the English doesn't really have. So when the King James translators, at least, were preparing the King James translation, and the King James translation really is more than just a translation. It's a transliteration. And what that means is the translators tried to compare and use one specific word for everything that they translated. In other words, they attempted and were quite successful to the greatest degree, but they attempted to translate something word for word. One word in the Hebrew translated into one word in the English. But with the permissive tense of the Hebrew language, that the English language doesn't have. They wound up translating in the causative sense. And this may have had something to do with their doctrine or their understanding of God. A lot of times people that are believers in the sovereignty of God and that's their baseline. God is sovereign and God can do and will do whatever he wants. Well, the sovereignty of God doctrine leaves us with a, a lack of understanding of his character and his nature. Because if God is making people sick, then how can we trust him to make people well? 
if God has put or sent or smitten anyone or the people or everyone that's operating here on the earth, if he's put these things upon us, then how can we have confidence, steadfast confidence, that we're not working against the will of God trying to get well? See, if sickness is the work of God in our lives, then we should not resist it. We ought to be praying for a double dose of it. But if, on the other hand, the translators have missed in describing the character and the nature of God, then it brings to light other scriptures and shows the truth of other scriptures. For example, Acts chapter 10, verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. See, the Bible describes a consistent and eternal place concerning God that he is always on the side of healing and sickness is always the result of the devil's work. What will it take for you to be persuaded? That is the question for all of us. You know, it says in Romans chapter 4, talking about Abraham, it says Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what God had promised he's able also to perform. That fully persuaded is the key. Now, if we look back in Genesis chapter 17 and 18, it identifies Abraham's position and his, well, his position at that point in time was a position of unbelief. At age 75, God appeared to Abraham and told him to follow him and go where he told him to go. And he would bless him, make a great nation out of him, and Abraham would be a blessing to the world. Well, the Bible tells us that Abraham went many years without receiving the promise of the child that God said that he would have. And during that time, it tells us that Sarah suggested that Abraham would have a son with her handmaid, Hagar. And so Abraham slept with Hagar and wound up having a child. That child's name is Ishmael, and he's the father of all the Arabs and the Arab nations in the earth today. So we could see, this was when Abraham was about 87 or 88 years old, somewhere around there. So that we can see that possibly, probably, his reason for not having a child had as much to do with Sarah's body as it had to do with his. And so God talks to him, talks to Abraham, and tells him that a certain time, a little over a year from that point in time, that Sarah would bear a child, and his name would be called Isaac. Well, God has to make another trip to the earth and deal with Sarah's unbelief First time God came to Abraham and talked to him again, renewed the promise of the child. Abraham just asked God to bless Ishmael because he considered the problem, the activity necessary to bring about this child of promise to be too big for God. 
So God explains to him and gives him enough to where Abraham believes and is convinced and is literally persuaded by God to believe for the child of promise. But Sarah's still not on board yet. So several months after that, God comes back to the earth to exact judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and talks to his covenant partner, which is Abraham. And he reiterates that he will fulfill the promise and bring forth this child. And Sarah is listening outside the tent. Women haven't changed much over the years. And so when God tells Abraham he'll have the child, Sarah, listening outside the tent, laughs. And God brings it to Abraham's attention. And so Abraham talks to Sarah and says, why did you laugh? And she just denies laughing. She said, I didn't laugh. I don't know what you're talking about. But then the question is posed to her that Abraham's already answered for himself, not for a long time, but several months before at least. And that question is, is anything too hard for God? Is anything too hard for God? Folks, that is such an important question. It's one that we should settle within ourselves, and it's one that we should consider regularly, continually. Because the places you see Israel making their mistakes and failing to take hold of the promise of God lies in that question. In Numbers 13, it tells us about how Israel comes to the promised land and they send the 12 spies into the promised land. Ten of them come back with an evil report. Two of them, Caleb and Joshua, say God's on our side. We can do this because he's for us. So the sin, the evil heart of unbelief that the 10 spies came back with is that this is too big for God. Taking the promised land is too big for God. Their armies are better than ours. They have might that we don't have. They have fortresses, walls built around their cities. Their cities. This is too big for God to do. Is anything too hard for the Lord? So they forfeited the very thing that God brought them out of Egypt to, to possess, the promised land. And they spent 40 years in the wilderness wandering without a home until that whole generation dies out. And then God brings their children who they were concerned about 40 years before, but he brings their children into the possession of the promised land. What will it take to persuade you that healing is a part of the work of God, the finished work of Christ on the cross? Folks, if the church admits that healing is a part of the atonement, or a more accurate way to say that is that healing is a physical healing for the body is a part of the redemptive work of Jesus. If we come to that realization if we come to the place where we accept that the translators mistranslated the words, but in spite of that, that Jesus on the cross bore not only our sins, but bore our sicknesses and diseases as well. If it becomes established in our hearts, once and for all, settled, once and for all, 
that healing is a part of the work that Jesus accomplished as our substitute on the cross and through his resurrection, then healing for the physical body will be just as simple to take hold of and to receive as it would be for somebody to give their life to Jesus and become part of his family. See, when it comes to the, the issue of sin, there are very few people that are refusing to come to the altar and give their hearts and lives to Jesus because they think they're too bad. There aren't too many people that are afraid that they won't be saved because of the evil doings of, the, of their own lives, the things that they've done to disqualify them. Now, the reason that that's not an issue, or is rarely an issue, perhaps, is that the Bible is very clear that it's the will of God for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, folks, if that's true, if it's the will of God for all men to be saved, then that means salvation, forgiveness of sins, the new birth belongs to anybody and everybody. So in the same manner, the very verse that we just quoted, it's the will of God for all men to be saved, that word saved does not just mean forgiven of sin. It means the recipient of all of the things that Jesus paid the price. It's God's will for all men to be saved or all men to enter into redemption, the redeeming work of Jesus. And that takes us back to Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, talking about sin. The difference between the transgressions and the iniquity has to do with the original sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden as opposed to personal sin. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Now, theologians have twisted things around contorted themselves in unique ways trying to argue or explain away this verse of scripture that says with his stripes we are healed and they come up with all kinds of goofy things for one for example is they say well that's talking about spiritual healing folks there's no such thing as spiritual healing because your spirit doesn't get healed the new birth is a replacement of a spirit that's alive, a spirit that's dead unto God. And the new birth makes him a new creature, a new creation, a different and a new, entirely new spirit. There's no healing for the spirit. It's a replacement. It's a new birth. So it can't be talking about spiritual healing. When nowadays you hear people talking about spiritual healing and using the term spiritual healing, most of the time people are talking about being healed from hurts, things that are a part of the soul. Not really the spirit of man at all. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. It was talking about financial and material provision. And with his stripes, we are healed. You know, it's a funny thing because in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 16 and 17 that we read earlier, Jesus healed them all that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. It wasn't a question. It wasn't a controversy in the time that this was written, in the time that Matthew wrote his gospel. There was no controversy whatsoever 
about whether or not healing was the will of God. I'm talking about within the church. There was no controversy about whether or not God provided healing for the physical body. Well, then why did Matthew, inspired by the Holy Ghost, give us a a Holy Ghost commentary on Isaiah 53, 4? Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Matthew tells us that that means he was, he healed them all. Healing belonged to everybody or was available for everybody that it might be fulfilled or to fulfill what Isaiah the prophet said himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Before it ever became controversial, before it ever became a point of debate, the Holy Ghost gave us the answer for what Isaiah 53 means. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains. Another question that needs to be considered or a part of the controversy that needs to be considered by us is the cause of sickness and disease. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I'm sorry, it's Romans chapter 4. No, that's not what I want. I want Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world. Well, he's got to be talking about Adam there. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. It says when Adam sinned, he sinned for, since he was the origin, the originator of the human race, the species of being called human. When he sinned, everybody sinned with him. He was what's called the federal head of mankind. And so his actions carried through to all of mankind, all of humanity. So it tells us here that sin was the entrance, the entry point for death. Now it's talking about spiritual death. And spiritual death is separation from God. So everything pertaining to death, spiritual death, which would also include sickness and disease, came as a result of sin, the act of sin in disobeying God that Adam and Eve committed in the Garden of Eden. Well, if the answer, if the origin for sickness and disease is sin, then what could deal with, how could God justly deal with the subject of sickness without making restitution for the sin that Adam created or committed? What this verse of Scripture is telling us is that the answer for sin is the answer for sickness and disease. Well, what's the answer for sin? Making Jesus the Lord of your life. The cross of Jesus. The substitutionary work that Jesus performed on our behalf then has to be the 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 cure, the answer for sickness and disease. In other words, sickness and disease is a part of the curse that Jesus bore. And therefore, the new birth 
and righteousness is the answer to the disease and sickness problem in the earth. So everywhere in the Old Testament that we see the atoning work of Jesus pointed to, the Old Testament talks about, the Bible tells us that the Old Testament examples are given to us to reveal to us different aspects of God's plan and purpose. Every time we see the atoning work of God carried out by a ritual sacrifice in some way, Jesus fulfilled each and every one of those atoning works. Therefore, in dealing with and, and conquering sin in the same manner and at the same time, his atoning work becomes the answer for sickness and disease. We have talked about numerous times during this series the Passover, where the blood was applied to the doorpost and lintels. The lamb was roasted and prepared in a certain way to provide strength for their journey as God led the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, they come to Marah where the waters were bitter, that probably means poisonous. And so they asked, sought from Moses what to do. God showed Moses a tree. And when he cut the tree down and threw the tree into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And God established himself by statute and ordinance and identifies himself. The first time God ever identifies himself to Israel now he's identified himself to Moses as I am the God that's more than enough. But the first time that he identifies himself to Israel, he identifies himself as I am the Lord that healeth thee. Again, the Hebrew language provides for what we would call what would be the equivalent of the present perfect tense which means he's saying I am the Lord that healed you through the Passover Psalm 105 tells us that he brought them forth with silver and gold and there was not one feeble among them not one weak not one sick in a congregation of two to seven million people so he brought them forth Without weakness, without sickness, without disease, not one person in all of the, the people of Israel was sick or infirmed when they left to go on their journey. So he's saying, I am the Lord that healed thee through the Passover. But that present perfect or the equivalent of the present perfect tense that's used for the language, the Hebrew language, also identifies that I'm the God that will always heal you. And that's what he said. He said, if you'll keep my statutes and operate according to my commandments, I will take sickness from the midst of thee, for I am the God that healeth thee. 765 years later, Hezekiah becomes king of Israel and he reinstitutes the Passover and the Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter 30 verse 20 that God healed the people. Here's the Passover once again 765 years after it was instituted bringing physical healing to the children of Israel. We see also in Paul's correspondence with Corinthian churches that they're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. They don't have the right attitude toward the work of God, the substitutionary work of Jesus on the cross. And as a result, there are many that are weak and sickly among them 
and many sleep or died prematurely. Well, if we see that the improper attitude during the communion of the Lord's Supper caused them, caused many of them to be subject to sickness and disease, then is not that also a confirmation that physical healing for the body is a part of the Passover work? And the Bible clearly says that Christ is our Passover who sacrificed for us. We have other times, other examples during the children of Israel's time in the wilderness where they disobeyed God. They disobeyed his commandments. And as a result, evil came upon them. In Numbers chapter 16, it talks about a plague. That's not sickness. You can't find any place in the Bible that God uses sickness or, or puts sickness on any of his people. This is one of the things about Paul's thorn in the flesh that very few people seem to recognize. And that is, Paul says the reason for the thorn in the flesh was because of the abundance of the revelations. He says, because of the abundance of the revelations that was given unto me, a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan. And of course it was sent upon him to hinder him. So he says it's because of the abundance of the revelations that this thorn in the flesh came upon him. Now Paul is trained in the highest education that the Jews had available. He has the same training as the high priest. He's of the tribe of Benjamin, so he never would be the high priest, but he had the same training they did. And a part of that training was that they had to memorize the law and the prophets. So basically, a part of their educational process was to memorize the Old Testament. That just seems staggering to me. That seems beyond possibility. But nevertheless, that was part of their training, part of their education. And in so doing, Paul would certainly be aware of the other two times in the Old Testament that it's talking about that the phrase thorn in your flesh is used or some equivalent to it is used. One time it's talking about the children of Israel's enemies in the promised land, how there would be thorns in their eyes. And the other place is talking about the enemies of Israel also when it talks about thorns in their flesh. So when Paul talked about the thorn in the flesh that was given unto him, first, in the first place it wasn't given by God. It says specifically that it was the messenger of Satan. So Paul is talking about a specific work of the devil against him to annoy him, to harass him, to hinder him because of the abundance of the revelations that he had that he received from God. Now if God's trying to keep him from having the abundance of revelations, then why did he give them to him? If the whole point of this was to do away with or reduce the abundance of revelations that Paul received, couldn't the Lord just stop giving them to him? Couldn't the Lord just stop revealing himself to him? Wouldn't that be simpler and easier than going through this thorn of Satan, the thorn of the flesh, messenger of Satan stuff? Well, this verse of Scripture or this passage of Scripture is telling us who's trying to stop him. It's not God that's trying to stop Paul from the ministry that he set him, set him into or the ministry work that he gave him to do. Satan's the one trying to stop him. This messenger of Satan, this hindrance of Satan is the thing that Paul prays for to be, to be delivered from. 
He prayed three times, he said, which is mind-boggling to me too. Because when you see all the trouble that Paul had, when you see the persecution in almost every city he went to, this persecution that was arrayed against him, I can't imagine only praying three times about that. If that was me, I'd be praying three times an hour. But Paul prays three times about it, and the Lord answers him and says, My grace is sufficient for thee. A couple of things to be aware of. Grace is never talked about in physical context. Mercy is. The two twins of God's goodness is mercy and grace. Grace is always a spiritual application. Mercy is a physical application. So when God says, my grace is sufficient for thee, he's saying, I'll give you spiritual strength to overcome this spiritual force that has arrayed himself against you, which Paul identified as the messenger of Satan. These modern-day theologians have twisted themselves and contorted themselves to say that God is revealing to him that he would not heal his body. And that brings up another question in my mind. If, Paul wouldn't, if God wouldn't heal Paul, why would Paul heal you or me? And even more important than that, how did Paul get people healed if he had some kind of visible or recognizable disease? Even further than that, how could Paul be used in the special miracles in Acts 19? Verse 11 says how God anointed Paul so that from his body were taken to the sick, handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them when those claws were applied to the bodies. If you had somebody, a minister or whoever it was, that had some visible disease, how in the world would you petition or seek to get one of these handkerchiefs or aprons to take to the sick? Paul identifies his problem as persecution, not sickness or disease. What will it take to persuade you? In Numbers chapter 16, it tells us about the sons of Korah that rose up against Moses and Aaron, and the earth swallowed them up. Then the next day, the children of Israel murmur against Moses and Aaron because they killed, well, they didn't do it. Moses and Aaron didn't do it. But they murmur against Moses and Aaron because of the killing of the sons of Korah and all their families and those that joined with them. Moses immediately sees what's going to happen. He recognizes and witnesses a plague that goes through the camp of Israel. Again, this word plague is not... The word sickness, God doesn't have any sickness, folks. If God's going to use sickness to, to curse someone or bring sickness upon them, since God's not the author of sickness, he didn't create sickness. He'd have to go to the devil to, use, to get sickness to use. I don't really believe the devil and God are working together. This plague is the equivalent of the angel of death that passed through the camp of Israel on the Passover, the original Passover, where the people of Israel, the children of Israel, were spared only by the blood of the Passover lamb. Again, that's a type of Jesus. So Moses sees this plague begin, and so he tells Aaron to take a censer and a coal 
hot coal off of the altar, put it in the censer with incense, and run through the camp of Israel. And the Bible tells us that Aaron did so, and the plague was stayed. The phrase that's used there is the plague was stayed. He stood between the living and the dead, and the plague was stayed. That means there was not one person that died from this plague once the atonement was made for the children of Israel. Now, before they were able to stop it, 14,700 people died. at the hands of the angel of death. Now folks, if the atoning work of Jesus, if that atonement, which is identified in the Old Testament, revealed to us in the Old Testament, if that plague had not responded to the very thing that is an example and points to the substitutionary work of Jesus on the cross, then what stopped the plague from continuing? Numbers chapter 21 tells us about how the people murmured against Moses and fiery serpents came into the camp. Now there are other scriptures in the Old Testament that tell us that God led them through the wilderness where there were fiery serpents. But we have no mention in any form whatsoever that the fiery serpents created or caused a problem even on an individual scale until the people murmured against Moses. Now I want you to see the pattern here and the pattern repeats over and over and over. The children of Israel sin. The consequences of sin begin. An atonement was made and the children of Israel are spared. That is the pattern that happens over and over again. And the pattern that is given to us as, a, as an example of the finished work of Jesus. So these people are bitten by the fiery serpents. They come to Moses and Aaron and say, we have sinned. They know what they did wrong. They said, we have sinned for we spoke against you and spoke against God. So Moses goes to the Lord and asks what to do and God tells him to make a brass serpent and put it on a pole and everyone that looketh upon it shall live. So Moses did so. The people entered back into the protective sheltering power of God meaning nobody else was bitten by the fiery serpents and everybody that was bitten by them up to that point recovered now in John chapter 3 and verse 14 Jesus says as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so also must the son of man be lifted up So Jesus identifies his crucifixion as fulfilling and encompassing the atoning that was made for the people of Israel. The Bible says in Psalm 107 verse 20, he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Here it's telling us that the word of God is the key and is the instrument whereby the people of Israel were, were healed, whereby the people of God can be healed. One last thought I want to leave with you. Jesus talked about in Mark chapter 4, he told them the parable of the sower sowing the word. And then in explaining the parable, he says certain things 
that I think are tremendously important. First of all, he said that understanding all parables depends on understanding the principle of the sower sowing the word. Secondly, he said the whole kingdom of God works that way. He said the entirety of the kingdom of God, which includes any and every blessing that God has for us, that Jesus purchased for us through his cross and his resurrection. He said they all depend on understanding the, the principles behind the parable of the sower and the sowing the word. He identifies the word that is sown as being the, uh, or the thing that is sown as the word of God. The sower sows the word. He sows the word in four different types of ground. The first is the wayside. That corresponds to people that aren't interested in the things of God, and so they never even consider it. Satan comes immediately and takes it out of their hearts. The second type of ground that he talks about, or the second type of people that he refers to, is called the stony ground. Now, the stony ground starts off all right and shows early growth, but because affliction, trouble, and persecution arise for the word's sake, they are offended. They turn loose of the word of God, in other words. Folks, you need to realize that trouble comes to us, authored by Satan, trying to get us to turn loose of the things of God that we hold dear. Persecution, the hindering power that Paul talked about as his thorn in the flesh, is also got a main purpose, a single purpose really, and that is to turn the heat on somebody, turn the heat up on the, the people of God so that they turn loose of the word. I wish I had a nickel for everybody that's ever said to me, Pastor Mike, when I started trying to put the word in practice in my life, I've never had so much trouble in my life. What's the devil doing? He's trying to make you turn loose of the thing that will bring your answer. The third type of ground that Jesus identified is the word that was sown among thorns. <clears throat> now the thorny ground, Jesus said, comes about when people take heed to the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust or desires for other things enters in and chokes the word and chokes it out. So it's talking about distractions distractions in this world that are designed, intended to make us turn loose of the word that, again, is our answer. And then Jesus talks about the fourth type of ground. The fourth type of ground which hears the word and receives it and keeps it as a place of priority in their life. They produce 30, 60, and 100-fold results. Now, folks, the power is in the seed. The power of God is the seed, which is the Word of God. But how do we keep it? What is the key to keeping the Word of God? Well, we find the answer to that in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. Joshua was taken over from Moses. Moses is going off of the scene, and Joshua is going to be the leader of the children of Israel. And God says to him, I'll be with you just like I was with Moses. But he gives him instruction on how he can tap into God's promise of being with him just like he was with Moses. He says, this book of the law, which is all the word of God they had, the first five books of the Bible, 
that Moses authored. That's all they had at that point. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. Folks, realize that your answer, your victory, has to do with what you say. This book of the law, this word of God, shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate. Meditating has something to do with your words. Eastern meditation is emptying your mind and sitting in a lotus position and humming. But Bible meditation is speaking the word of God continuously. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Now the rest of your time is yours, but day and night belongs to meditating in the word. But thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then, after attending to the word day and night, keeping it in a place of priority, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. It doesn't even say God will make your way prosperous. You make your own way prosperous and have good success through keeping of the word. Now in Proverbs chapter 4, it expands a little bit on what it means to be a doer of the word and to meditate day and night. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 20, my son, attend to my words. Put them in first place. Don't let anything become more important than the word of God in your life. My son, attend to my words. Incline your ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thy heart. For they are life unto those that find them. And health to all their flesh. Folks, there's a discovery process to the word. There's a discovery process that goes from just being a hearer of the word to being a doer of the word. The Bible says the hearer is not the one that's blessed. The doer is the one that's blessed. So attend unto my words. Put them first place and keep them first place. Incline your ear unto my sayings. No matter whatever else you're hearing, no matter what other voices speak and tell you, the voice that you need to listen to is the word of God itself. Let them not depart from your eyes. See yourself with the answer. See yourself with the thing that you're believing God for. See yourself as healed and well. See yourself with provision and prosperity. See yourself with the peace of God. Don't let the devil put his pictures in your mind. You take the pictures that the word of God gives you and you keep looking at them. And what does that produce? It produces supernatural and spiritual results. For they, my words, are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. Here again, the word of God, he sent his word and healed them. As Psalm 107 verse 20 says, the word of God will produce results in your life and in your body. And everything about the kingdom of God works that way. Every promise, the promise of healing, the established work that Jesus performed by taking stripes upon his back. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Surely. Only time the word surely is used in all of Isaiah 53 has to do with sickness and disease. Surely he has borne. He carried them. Just as he carried our sins, he carried our sickness and our disease. Surely he has borne our sickness and disease. Surely he has borne our sickness and disease. Folks, healing belongs to you just as much as forgiveness of sins. We can reach out because Jesus paid the price for sin and sickness together. We can reach out and take hold of sickness or take hold of physical body, physical healing for our bodies. 
healing from sickness and disease. Just as we can take hold of forgiveness of sins when we make a mistake and step over outside of love and step over into sin. Now the devil doesn't want that message to get out. He certainly doesn't want people to know that. But the Bible is very clear that the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he's forgiven, committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. The Bible speaks of a parallel work of sin and sickness together. And it's the same power of God, the same method of planting the word of God in our hearts and keeping his word, attending to it and keeping it that will bring us into victory. I believe the established truth that Jesus was our substitute not only for sin but for sickness and disease is going to be of great importance the closer and closer we get to the end. We've just spent the last year and a half in the middle of a pandemic where we've had government and medical personnel lying to us about what it was and about what we should do about it. The people of God need to be established, fully persuaded in what the Bible says about sickness and disease so that we not be carried away by the things that we've just experienced. And I don't for a moment think that that'll be the end of any of it. So what will it take to persuade you? You could take the idea of the mistranslation and say, well, I believe Pastor Mike and others are trying to twist the word to suit themselves and say what they want it to say. And you can reject it completely. You can take Isaiah 53, 4 and say, well, those words may mean sickness and pains in other places. But the translators had greater knowledge than Pastor Mike. And so it's not talking about healing for the physical body. You can take the atoning work of Jesus in any of these examples we've used and say that was just for Israel that doesn't apply to the church and you could set aside the healing that we're telling you belongs to everybody you can also consider the source that you're hearing it from you can listen to the devil and say if healing was as easy to take hold of as Pastor Mike says that it is then why isn't he yielded yet either just on a side note let me tell you folks the things that you can't see about the attack of the devil against us and the attack of the devil against my body the things that you cannot see and the improvements that have been made in the unseen things. If you were to know them, you would not be in any way affected by the physical symptoms that still hang on. But it's up to you. What will it take for you to be persuaded? Paul began fully persuaded meaning he went from a position of unbelief I said Paul I meant Abraham Abraham went from a position of unbelief to being fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform 
fully persuaded. When he was fully persuaded and when he gave God the glory for what he could not, could not yet see. The promise came. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for the finished work of Jesus, the substitutionary sacrifice that he made, the bearing in his body, sickness and disease, the bearing in his spirit, sins and spiritual death. Thank you, Father, for the awful price that he paid for our well-being. And Father, we also thank you that when the moment, the second that the price was paid was completed, then the life of God came back upon Jesus and he became the first born among many brethren the same new birth that we have is the new birth that raised Jesus from the dead Father we magnify you we worship you we take hold of healing for our physical bodies we thank you, Father, that the prayer of faith does heal the sick and that you are raising us up. And if we have committed sins, they are forgiven us. Thank you, Father, that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. And no matter what sickness or disease attacks us, we've been redeemed from that sickness or disease because it's a part of the curse of the law. Thank you, Lord, that the fulfilling of Isaiah 53, verse 4, surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains, is fulfilled by the healing of all. Not the healing of some, but the healing of all. We attend to your words, Father. We incline our ears unto your sake. We let them not depart from before our eyes. And we keep them in the midst of our hearts. For your words are life unto us, for we have found them. And their health to all of our flesh. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together.